Humans of Earth, it is I, Skeletor, self-appointed ruler of Eternia and enslaver of worlds. I also love boogie boarding, raising tigers, and attempting to kill Hina. Now join Arnie, Marjorie, and Stuart as the now-playing podcast, Ha McTeeny, unlocks 1987's Golden Globus classic film, Masters of the Universe. Starring Frank Langella as a poor substitute for yours truly. Today we're discussing Masters of the Universe Starring Dolph Lundgren, Franklin Jella, Courtney Cox, James Tolkien, Christina Pickles, Meg Foster, and Billy Barty Directed by Gary Goddard This is Arnie and By the Podcast of Grayskull I have the podcast! <laughs> I don't have the power. It's Stuart in LA. And this is Marjorie, and I might have a cosmic key. I want to thank everyone for already downloading and listening to this show. This is very interesting. In the history of Now Playing, I believe this is the only show we've ever done where none of us on the staff were like, let's do that. I mean, we've had polls where people could choose between stuff that we wanted to do or were thinking of doing, but we're doing Masters of the Universe thanks to Travis Valenti. On Twitter, Travis Time Lord, he pledged to our Kickstarter for the first now playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend, and as his reward, he got to pick a movie for us to review, and he picked this. Masters of the Universe, the 1987 classic hit action film, right? Well, I don't know about <laughs> hit, but it was a film in 1987, and it was based on a hit toy cartoon line, which I think everyone is much more familiar with than maybe this movie. I probably have seen this movie more than both of you guys combined. I've seen it twice. I saw it once. <laughs> yeah, twice oh, okay. now. <laughs> so maybe in the last few years, I've seen it more than you guys combined. My brother, who's four years younger than me, was huge into He-Man, like insanely into He-Man. And then I had a mother who thought Dolph Lundgren was hot. Mm-hmm. Well, we had the VHS tape in our house and we watched it a lot. So I know we saw it at least twice in theaters because my brother was like so ecstatic over it. And I'll admit that if I see it pop up on the guide on TV, I'll turn it on because it's fun to have in the background. You don't really have to pay a lot of attention to it. There's not an overly complicated plot. It's a lot of fun. I saw this in theaters opening weekend because I was a Masters of the Universe fan. I had the toys. I started collecting them in 1982. I really stopped collecting them around 84 or 85. That's when I switched over to Transformers. But I was way into He-Man. I'd watched all 130 episodes of the cartoon series. I was watching She-Ra just to continue the He-Man fandom. But when this came out, I did have a question. I mean, I talked about this with the same summer this came out. We had Superman 4, and it was like, well, do I see Superman 4, or do I see Nadine? It's kind of a strange choice. Well, here... <laughs> what? Well, I don't even know what Nadine is. Are you... Are the Kim Basinger bank robbing movie? Yeah. 
or whatever it was. You're uh-huh. a weird kid, Arnie. <laughs> uh, I think you go see Superman 4. That's what my mom said, because when I described the two movies. Well, here, 1987, I had just moved to Florida. School hadn't started yet. I knew no one. I was seeing a movie a week. And, I mean, I can go through them. It was Revenge of the Nerds 2, Summer School, Superman 4, Masters of the Universe, and then the week after this, The Monster Squad. But going to Masters of the Universe, since I saw one movie a week, it was like, well, this or Stakeout, the Richard Dreyfus Emilio Estevez cop film. You might have chosen poorly on that I one. Did. I did. I really did. I remember Stakeout being okay. I actually like it and have seen it more times now than I have seen Masters of the Universe. But it was that weird borderline between kids superhero movie fandom and more adolescent other type of movie interest. But I did go see this in theaters. I think I had a very Star Wars reaction. This is not my He-Man. And I stormed out when the credits rolled. Yeah, I definitely think it should be stressed that this movie came out probably too late after the phenomenon. I mean, when I met you, Arnie, I think this was the first thing after Smurfs that you really got into. Like, I remember you were Star Wars for sure, and then Smurfs, and then this. And I remember, you know, yeah, you collecting, you had everything. You had Castle Grayskull, you had all of the figures. I got lucky. I had pneumonia when I was seven. I want to call that lucky. Well, wait till I finish my story. (laughs) Right before I got pneumonia, my mom had taken me to a hardware store. And the hardware store happened to have a toy aisle, as stores did in 1982. And there I saw this really weird, awesome toy. It was an action figure bigger than any I'd ever seen at five and a half inches. I was used to the three and three quarter inch Star Wars figures and the, what, one and a half inch Smurfs? And it was this orange, gnarled beast man. And I'm like, Mom, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? And not knowing what she was doing, she said yes. And I didn't know either because I just thought it was one cool figure. This is also how I got into Star Wars collecting, by the way, is by finding the Greedo figure, just thinking it looked like a cool alien, and that opened a door. Well, Masters of the Universe, I mean, it's awesome in that it was right around the time when there were unique toy properties that became multimedia franchises, whereas right now I kind of feel we're a lot in reverse, where multimedia franchises then become the toys. But they started off by world building. All the figures came with comics. And I just thought I was getting Beast Man to have a gnarled monster on my table. But there was a comic inside that explained he worked for Skeletor and that he fought He-Man. And immediately I had to have them all. And then I got pneumonia and hallucinated and like 104 degree fever. And so every single friend of my mom's said, what can we bring him as a get well present? (laughs) I had everything in one week, except for Zodiac. He was the hard-to-find figure. He took 14 days. That's the way I remember it, is that, like, all of a sudden, everything changed. It was like, you know, the next week, yeah, your room, like, everything had been pushed to the closet, and your room was Eternia. And and that was what we were doing. We had been making Star Wars movies, then we were planning to make He-Man movies. I remember I was, of course, going to play He-Man in the movie. My plan was to bulk up by riding my mom's exercise bike 10 minutes a day that was that was the regimen 
<laughs> you know, Hugh Jackman looks at that and goes, damn, Stuart, what were you thinking? That's a lot of work. But, uh, and I think you were going to play Skeletor, of course. Like, that was always my thing. I think you had a mask, right? It glowed in the dark. Oh, I remember this so well. And in fact, I went back, I reread some of these mini comics, and it it surfaced so many memories. <gasps> You guys are fun. <laughs> I did have that armor set that I had a He-Man armor set that you were going to use. You were blonde at the time, so obviously you're right. That was that was my end. Was I was blonde, so I had to be He-Man. Fortunately, we had an Asian female friend. She was, of course, Evil Lynn, whether she wanted to be or not. And I was going to be Skeletor because evil, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But- I would buy you a Skeletor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it was a reprise of you playing Darth Vader in our Star Wars movie. Very true. But I remember, Stuart, the story you wrote, which was intriguing to say the least. I, of course, wanted to push for full Eternia. We had made our Star Wars 4 movie by this point. We had delusions of grandeur. I mean, the Star Wars 4 was two people swimming in a pool. (laughs) This, we were going to have a cast of like 30 people. (laughs) And I wanted to go the full Eternia and... I think we were going to put some armor on my German Shepherd for Battle Cat. <laughs> oh, my God. But Stuart's script, Stuart, as a more realistic eight-year-old compared to my seven, was saying, we can't do that. We need to make a story. I think, actually, you probably had the same discussions as canon film. We need to make a story of Eternia coming to Earth and not try to go to Eternia. And so Stuart's story was that there's a Skeletor mask that a child would put on and all of a sudden the mask would attack him and he would become evil. Silver Shamrock. Yeah, I was about to say, sounds like someone really liked horror movies, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, basically you took the Silver Shamrock thing and I remember you like telling me how it would go. You put on the mask and started talking about snakes coming out of your eyes and clawing <laughs> at it. and uh, You were very theatrical and I remember mm-hmm. this vividly now. Mm, yes. Well, we didn't make that movie. Unfortunately, we can't share it for donors. But yeah, I do remember your He-Man phase. I think, guys, that we maybe need to get some funding going for this movie, though. (laughs) Well, He-Man really was the thing for two years. I didn't realize that until I started looking up the toy line. But I remember every toy I had, and it was the thing. When I had pneumonia, I did not get Castle Grayskull. I had to wait till Christmas for that. And by then I was eight. Oh, no. How awful for you. <laughs> the Castle Grayskull was pretty cool, I gotta say. Oh, yeah, it was. My brother had one. It was awesome. Yeah, He-Man was my toy for years. I watched that cartoon. I went back. Dark Horse Comics, just late last year, released a hardcover compilation of all the mini-comics that they had ever printed in the States back with the toys and everything. I reread these comics that I haven't read since like 1983. It was a great blast from the past. It also opened my eyes, though, to how malleable the He-Man franchise is. I think when people think of He-Man, including me, you think of the filmation cartoon. You know, you think by the power of Grayskull, I have the power. And I went back, I rewatched some of those cartoons as well. It's funny, I could still remember most of the lines. I was VHS taping them, having them looped when I was seven to nine. You were. That was the first time I ever saw a VCR was your house watching He-Man. I... I guess I didn't make it home in time to see it after school, but you showed it to me. Yeah. So I rewatched those and I realize what it is now. It's Star Wars meets Superman. You've got Prince Adam, the cowardly, clumsy 
spoiled kid who every time trouble comes magically disappears and Superman or He-Man appears to take care of the trouble. So you've got that Superman thing going on, but you've also got a lot of Star Wars in this old Masters of the Universe in that you had magical swords and sorcery and high-tech vehicles. So while it on the surface had kind of a swords and sorcery thing, it came off, and I think the reason I liked it as a kid was because it was really feeling very Star Wars and Skeletor was Vader and He-Man was Luke. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it had a little bit of Conan going on there. There was like Conan the Barbarian. I even heard a rumor that this toy line started as a spinoff of the movie. And then when it got an R rating, they were like, eh, all right, we'll do our own thing. Well, yeah, if you recall, in the early 80s is when you had Conan the Barbarian and you had Clash of the Titans whenever that was. Thunder the Barbarian. You remember that one, the cartoon? But yeah, there was a lot of that kind of let's bring back fantasy swords and sandals kind of stuff. Yeah, and I did some digging into the toy line and it did start in 1980. The people who held the rights to Conan the Barbarian started to talk to Mattel about toys, but Mattel didn't do that. They ended up making, I can't recall if they actually made some figures or not because they had a contract to, but then Mattel decided to do He-Man and they were sued by the rights holders of Conan. And Mattel won the lawsuit though, because Conan was at that point 50 years old, you know, there's a lot of that in culture. But it's funny because when I went back and read the mini comics, I didn't remember that the true origin of He-Man was very Conan. In these comics, there was no Prince Adam. There was a tribe of jungle people warriors. He-Man was their champion, and he left the tribe to go out and fight evil, and he was the strongest one there, and he happened to rescue a sorceress who then gave him a... She called it suit of armor, but to me it looks like a belt he wears on his chest... (laughs) That would increase his strength to superhuman levels and gave him the power sword. The power sword was split in two. And if you had both halves of the power sword, you could open the door to Castle Grayskull. But Skeletor had like one half. He-Man had the other half. It was very Conan to me. As the comics went on, they started to veer more towards the filmation area. But those early ones, yeah. I mean, they were written by Don Glute. I actually interviewed him. He's a classic writer who basically shaped my childhood. He wrote the novelization of Empire Strikes Back. He wrote a ton of Spider-Man and his amazing friends and other kinds of cartoons. And he created the entire universe in by doing the first four comics. He named Castle Grayskull after his wife, now ex-wife, whose maiden name was Gray. He built all this and then got really pissed because they gave him zero royalties and zero payments. <laughs> But yeah, it started Conan, the cartoon changed it, and then we got this film. By the time of this film, they'd already canceled the He-Man cartoon line, primarily to promote the She-Ra spinoff, where, very Star Wars, Prince Adam had a twin sister who also has the power, and they thought that this movie would revive interest in the flagging toy line, not Uh. that the toy line would kill interest in this movie. (laughs) That was my memory was like, you know, in childhood, years are important. You know, like from one to the other, what your everything changes, you know. And I just remember thinking when this movie finally came out, He-Man, this is so old. You know, it had only been, what, about four years since I had 
heard about the cartoon to the movie coming out, but it just seemed like they were too late to jump on the phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't the first He-Man movie. It's important to note, we're doing this as a one-off review at the request of Travis, but this could theoretically be a three-part and maybe in the near future four-part retrospective series. Wait, there were more? Yeah, what are you talking about? What movies? Get are these it. the Stuart Narnie movies? No. <laughs> Not recommend. <laughs> in 1985, there was a movie called The Secret of the Sword, and it was the five-part opening episodes of She-Ra where He-Man discovers he has a sister and she's on a different world, and they've released this in theaters. I saw it in theaters. Oh, wait. You're talking about a cartoon. Yes. Oh, no. Well, that doesn't count. We're not doing that. And then later they did He-Man and She-Ra a Christmas special (laughs) as a movie. It was not theatrically released, (laughs) but, you know, we sometimes do TV movies. We're going to be doing one later this year with Legion of the Superheroes. But, yeah, in 1985, when they did that He-Man animated movie... That's striking when the iron was still really hot. The toy line was still going. It's just strange to me that Filmation chose to replace He-Man with She-Ra instead of doing both He-Man and She-Ra. But I guess they'd done 130 episodes. I remember coming home from school to watch the He-Man She-Ra Power Hour. So they just, I guess, kept it in reruns. But yeah, 1987, Canon Films gets together and decides they're going to make a movie they know they can't make this cartoon because the cartoon's too fantastical and canon's too cheap. So, <laughs> well, yes, but canon was upping its game. I want to point out this was a very big year. Canon Films had been known for American Ninja, the breaking, breakdancing movies, and a lot of other schlock, Chuck Norris junk. But they were upping their games. 1987, they had three major motion pictures in the works that were going to make or break them. It was either going to take them to the next level and the Golan Globus was going to be the next Warner Brothers or it was going to, as it did, wipe them out. But their three (laughs) films were Over the Top, Sylvester Stallone's arm wrestling movie. Strangely, I find that to be underrated. It's not as bad as it should be. (laughs) Are, Are you sure, Arnie? Because it's as bad as it is. It's a very touching story about a father and son road trip while he arm wrestled. I got into it. It was touching. It was like an arm wrestling version of The Champ. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I think <laughs> arm wrestling just isn't naturally some a sport people want to watch no. on television. And, you know, they paid Stallone an enormous amount of money. I think he was the most paid actor of all time to do that movie. I think he got $15 million. And then they made the movie for an additional 10 So you had a $25 million arm wrestling movie that probably should have cost, what, $2 million. And they lost big on that. And then, yes, they had super... Superman, which started it with a budget of $30 million, but by the end of it got slashed in half, and they put out the shoddiest, most embarrassing Superman movie of all time. And I remember we discussed canon when we did our Superman 4, the Quest for Peace review. Even if I didn't remember our conversations doing Superman 4, as an adult watching this, seeing this movie... It feels like they were filmed, you know, about the same time with the same orchestra, same effects. I was surprised that they had different directors, actually. I was also surprised this film wasn't directed by Albert Pune, director of the Captain America movie that never got theatrically released. 
Yeah, but this was the last straw, I guess you could say. It was like with those two expensive movies bombing, all things were riding on Masters of the Universe being a hit. And it had to be a hit not just with the kids that loved the toys and bought them a couple of years ago. It had to be a hit with a larger audience. This had to have Star Wars appeal. And I think that was a big creative influence into why we get the movie we did. Yeah, they don't spend much time on Eternia because that would be expensive. But I also think that they were trying to reach out to teens and adults with this storyline. And don't forget, they also held the rights. And this is why we didn't get a movie for so many years to Spider-Man. They wanted to take the profits from Superman and Masters of the Universe and make the world's biggest Spider-Man movie. And that's back when I was reading it was going to star Charlie Sheen and... Michael Dudikoff at, at first. The American Ninja had it first dibs. But yes, <laughs> if they could get the big bucks, they would get Charlie Sheen. <laughs> they were spending a lot of money, I'll grant you, but it was still only $18 million. They decided to go back to the comics for inspiration. They did pull a few things from the cartoon series... We do get He-Man saying, I have the power, which is cartoon. It's not in the original comics. But we get basically a third incarnation of He-Man, a totally new take on this now five-year-old hero, a reinterpretation of sorts. Yeah, that was the disappointment, was I did rent this. This was in the era of I rented everything that was at the video store. It was 1988, and I wanted to see what they would do with that property that Arnie, you know, had all the figures for. There was no Battle Cat. There was no Merman. No Ram Man. Isn't that disappointing? I wanted Ram Man. Yeah, all of it. I mean, I remember writing that movie, and I'm like, man, they just screwed this up. You know, my my version would have been better than this. And that was because, yes, they went for a different thing. And I think... That might have been hard to accept at the time. It might have contributed to the lack of enthusiasm for the movie, but it makes it more interesting to return to now. What were they going to do with it? Arnie, why don't you give them the plot? We'll get into Masters of the Universe. At the center of the universe lies the planet Eternia, always on the balance between the dark side and the light. And on that world is Castle Grayskull. He who rules the castle shall have the power to be the master of the universe. When the film opens, the evil Skeletor, played by Frank Langella, has overtaken the castle and Grayskull's guardian, the Sorceress, is his captive. Also captive is Gwildor, who? A small, furry locksmith, played by Billy Barty. The planet's defender, He-Man, played by Dolph Lundgren, fresh off Rocky IV, and his allies, Man-at-Arms, also known as Duncan, played by John Cipher, and Tila, played by Chelsea Field, try to reclaim the castle, but only succeed in freeing Gwildor, who explains the MacGuffin of the film, which is the Cosmic Key. He had made one of these devices, which would allow people to teleport through time and space, and Skeletor demanded he make another for him. If Skeletor gets both keys, he will truly have the power to master the universe, and so to escape Skeletor's stormtroopers, the four attorneys open a portal to 1980s Earth. The key was separated from them during the teleportation, so they befriend Earthlings Julie and Kevin, played by Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil respectively, and they try to reclaim the key. Julie is helpful, but she has a dark secret. <laughs> she blames herself for her parents' death in an airplane crash because she lied about having to study instead of spending the day at the beach with them. Instead of going to the beach, they went flying instead and died. 
but the Eternians are pursued by suspicious police detective Lubbock, played by Back to the Future's James Tolkien, and Skeletor's forces invade Earth to claim the key. Among the troops are Skeletor's key henchmen, Beastman, Blade, Sarod, not Sauron, but close, and Karg. I don't remember those figures, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> I remember Beastman. Yeah. <laughs> there were figures, though. A major battle ensues as Skeletor tries to invade Earth, but He-Man surrenders himself to be Skeletor's slave to save the others and free Earth. But Tila, man-at-arms of the others, teleport to Eternia using the key and free He-Man. A pitched sword fight happens between He-Man and Skeletor, and He-Man succeeds in sending the evil one down a bottomless pit. <laughs> How did he beat Frank Langella? Hmm? You think Frank Langella was in that fight? We'll talk about it. <laughs> With evil defeated, the heroes regained Eternia, and Gwildor sends Kevin and Julie back to Earth to the time before Julie's parents die in the plane crash. Julie steals their plane keys, I think. they. Yes, that's totally what happened. Planes have keys, and they have a big key ring, and she just took it. I think it was on like one of the floaty things in case it falls in the pool. But by doing this, she saves their lives, and all is happy as credits roll to an after credit scene. Stuart, did you stick around? I, I think I remembered it. I did see it again, yes. Yes, of Skeletor giving the false promise that he'll be back. <laughs> he wishes, or maybe he doesn't. I, I do think Frank Langella was in need of work. Uh, Dracula did not lead to bigger and better things for him. But uh, who would have guessed that he would be the star of the movie and the inheritor of Skull here at the beginning? Strangely, it's very funny. Much like He-Man and Skeletor on opposite sides of the fight... Langella and Lundgren are on opposite sides of this movie. Langella says this is one of the films he's proudest of making. Not because it was a hit or even good, but because he did it for his son. I knew it. His son was so excited. <laughs> his son actually wrote some of the bad dialogue that he uses in this film. Oh. Don't tell people that, but I believe it. Yes. <laughs> he was just really happy to be doing this for his son. Whereas Dolph Lundgren, coming right off Rocky IV, poised for, in his mind, super-duper stardom, called this the biggest embarrassment in his entire career. Nah, we know that can't be true. I mean, look <laughs> at everything that came afterwards. But, uh, yes, I can imagine it is the thing that screwed him up from being, if not A-list, at least a B-list star, to being, yeah, straight-to-video Red Scorpion. Well, he had Universal Soldier, but... Oh, yeah, I guess there was a, a few brief moments of theatrical release in his career. But by and large, yeah, he became a straight-to-tape guy. Yeah, and he's come around. I mean, around the time of Expendables or Expendables 2, he said he'd be open to returning to the He-Man franchise. What? As what? Either King Randor or just a cameo. Oh, okay. Or as He-Man, he said he'd be okay. He-Man. Okay, all right, so <laughs> he's not crazy. He's looking pretty good, though, still. You saw him at the Creed premiere. He looked pretty smooth-skinned. He's either got a good surgeon or a really clean life. So, yeah, I mean, he understands this movie now has a place in many people's hearts, including Marjorie and Travis, I guess. <laughs> I guess I just have fond memories of it. and It's not an Oscar winner, but I find it enjoyable. It is a raspberry winner. Well, okay. I tend to like a lot of raspberry winners, but... <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it looks pretty good. I gotta say, when we start here, I'm a little disappointed that, like, Grayskull has just already won. Obviously, you'd want to open with the battle that gives Skeletor the victory. But when he's walking into the throne room and what have you, I, you know, it, it's 
impressive enough. I feel like, yeah, this is a higher budget movie and you can buy into this world. But I, I'm telling you, Langella sits down on a throne and I don't think he gets up again for the rest <laughs> of the movie. I mean, that man does not have the power. That man has arthritis or something. He is he is not wanting to move. Yeah. You know what I was thinking this whole time, though? We started with, like, very Superman ripoff opening credits, right? Like, somebody needs to sue over those opening credits, except I guess these people also own Superman by this point. <laughs> yeah, then, the, yeah, exactly. It's their thing. <laughs> and that's just a shocker, because while the theme is good, the theme song sounds a lot like the Superman theme, but they had the cartoon theme, right? They could have used the one that we all knew and, and should have used it at some point. But Bill Conti, you know, composer of the Rocky score, just wanted to do his own anthem. And so we just get something that, while it works, it just, again, reminds you you're not watching the cartoon. I kind of felt like it was trying to be more adult. And it's not necessarily a more adult movie, but maybe they're trying to make a break from the comic and the animated series and make it a little bit more in tune with what was hot at the time. Absolutely. And not like, hey, here's a cartoon brought to life. Yeah, they knew that adults, if they thought this was just something for kids, would not go see it. And they needed their money. Yeah, and then we do get into that battle. And I was really thinking Superman 4. And I'm wondering why Dolph Lundgren wasn't Radioactive Man or why Radioactive <laughs> Man wasn't He-Man. I mean, <laughs> I think he could have just taken a golf cart from one set to another. <laughs> well, I think if you're playing the lead of one movie that's being shot at, at, at the same time as the other, you, you don't have the flexibility to do that. Plus, how could they recast Nuclear Man? That Chippendales dancer was perfect for the role. <laughs> uh, yeah, Frank Langella in Skeletor. This is where I honestly thought Albert Pune was behind this. I got confused. I thought Canon made that Captain America film because I thought this was the exact same mask they used on that horrible red skull there, only an albino version. I mean, you can't do a floating skull in 1987. There's no CGI. You wouldn't be able to make it work. And so you do this horrible makeup effect where you cover his nose with spandex and try to make it look like black holes. And he's gaunt. I'll give him that. But he's not Skeletor. They had really good makeup and special effects guys on this movie. What they have said about it is we weren't given the time. Typically, you know, you either got to have a lot of money or a lot of time to make it look right. And they had no time for prep. They had a month when they asked for a year. So they did a lot of what they could do in a short amount of time. And this is the Skeletor we're seeing is probably a first draft that would have been finessed into something that did look cool. But as it is now, yeah, I mean, hot damn, it's it ain't <laughs> Skeletor. And, and you can't see Frank Langella's face, which makes you wonder why get Frank Langella? I mean, you get an actor like that because he can act. But if you put all that white putty on his face and then make him sit for the whole time, I mean, you don't have a credible threat. But on the flip side, you've got... Gwildor, who's played by Billy Barty, with a mask that doesn't move except for the bottom chin. And is this supposed to be Orko? Did they just decide they weren't going to do Orko? Because this should have been Orko, right? Yeah, I came into this movie and I expected Orko, for those who don't know, is a floating court jester who does some magic and stuff. And they wanted to bring that Orko feel 
they couldn't afford to do an Orko. I, I don't know why. I mean, if you could do a Boo Boo the Owl in Clash of the Titans in 80, they could have hung something on a string and floated it around. Then again, I saw the flying effects in this movie. Maybe I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> but yes, this is supposed to be this version of an Orko. Okay, yeah, but Langella has me worried in the opening shot, but what has me more worried is that this Orko, what's his name, Gwildor, is being taken to him, and we have our introductory fight for Dolph, you know, I've talked to other podcasts, The Punisher 1989, about how a movie can be ruined when you throw Dolph into the mix, <laughs> and all right, he may have muscle mass, but he has no agility, right? I mean, this guy cannot fight. This opening fight is very troublesome when he quote-unquote frees Gwildor from the captivity. He is horrible at fighting. I yeah. am convinced that Dolph was only there because someone said, hey, he kind of looks like He-Man. And yes. he's really built because he has absolutely no finesse in the battle scenes. Everything is like slow motion, like they're dancing. And it's just, it's sad and pathetic. But I also think if when you get someone in there that's that big, and he is a pretty big guy at this point, they lack that agility and that finesse to do things like that. And if you look at your stuntmen, it's usually the more wiry guys who can do right. the fast action like that, like Jason Statham. Yeah, exactly. I don't think He-Man was ever supposed to be a fencer. You know, he was yeah. supposed to be the big muscular guy who can hit hard. He swung a broadsword, but he didn't swing it quickly. He wasn't nimble. They brought in Lundgren because he had the look. He couldn't act worth a damn, and they never <laughs> intended him to. He was supposed to be completely overdubbed with an American actor because <laughs> his accent was so damn thick. And what happened was he had it in his contract that he got three attempts at looping. And if he couldn't get rid of the accent by the third recording, then they could bring in a voiceover artist and they ran out of money. So they just ended up using Dolph because they couldn't afford the three takes to waste <laughs> to bring in somebody good. That's hilarious. There is a funny story about, I mentioned how over the top was being made at the same time. Stallone dropped by the set and they were filming a scene where Dolph was up in the air on one of those hoverboards and, you know, screaming something. And he just turned to the director and said, you gave that guy lines? <laughs> <laughs> and then just shook his head and walked off the set. But it's kind of true. I mean, yeah, you know you're in trouble when that is your lead. Although I question that. Is he man really the lead they removed him from the title this is not called he man and the masters of the universe it's just masters of the universe i feel like they downplay he man in this film i feel like he gets very few fights and that once we get to earth you almost forget about him yeah i think this is definitely a courtney cox vehicle <laughs> because she wasn't really big yet oh she was to me well i loved misfits of science Nobody else remembers Misfits of Science, but it was this half-season, short-lived NBC Friday night superhero show. Courtney Cox was a telekinetic teenager who I was in love with. I never saw Misfits of Science, but I recognized her from the Bruce Springsteen video, Dancing in the Dark. Yes, uh, well. There you go. That was her claim to fame, was she was all over MTV as the lucky girl that got to dance in the dark was Springsteen. I knew her from that. I knew her from Misfits of Science. I think half the reason I went to see Masters of the Universe instead of Stakeout was because Courtney Cox was in this. <laughs> so it worked! 
Yeah, but I do think this movie got dolphed, much like Punisher. <laughs> I think we would have a much stronger, even with all the production values that we might cite as weak or plot points that we might talk about as problematic, I think this movie would be doing miles better if they had a charismatic lead. That, you know, we enjoyed watching him even when the production failed his charisma. Yeah, I still think He-Man is the star of this film. It is a bit more ensemble-ish, but they just went back to the toy title in my mind it, with Masters of the Universe. And He-Man does carry the biggest load in this film. They do spend a lot of time elsewhere, and I think that's to try to make it relatable. I mean... What this becomes, you've got Skeletor already in charge of Skull, He-Man, Tila, and Man-at-Arms looking nothing like their toys. Nothing like their toys. She could lead an aerobics class, mm-hmm. but I don't see her on a journey yet. It was very Jane Fonda-ish. And he looks like he's in a SWAT team, not anything else. I loved how between Tila, Duncan, and He-Man... They all looked like they were dressed from different time periods. <laughs> and Tila was the 80s. Yes, she was. Headband <laughs> and big hair. But this was for money reasons. They had to go to Earth. And so what we end up with is the fish out of water story where they're talking as much to teenagers who should be their audience as well as trying to fight Skeletor. And I remember this being a revealed twist in the previews i knew this is where it was going and yet even when i saw it in theaters i'm like oh huh we're doing this this is not what i exactly wanted (laughs) you know you're in the 80s when the synthesizer is the thing that's going to give you control over the universe that is a hilarious device you've got to wonder why i actually kind of like that concept if it were explored a little bit more intellectually you know at some point someone says the universe is just music tones musical tones can unlock doorways and portals so if they'd gotten stoned and listened to some floyd you'd have liked it better (laughs) well i think that that would be you know if you were going to put in music theory for example into this storyline that would be interesting i've never seen a movie that has done that and i still haven't because it's just gobbledygook that yeah tells us this little device is important so we were in seattle with a group of our friends and we were going around different seattle sites and shopping at different like little old toy stores and everything and we end up at a place called Lynn's Toy Stable. So we walk in and I immediately like look towards the back of the store and I go, it's the Cosmic Key! I was in front of the Cosmic Key. It was for sale. The one used in the movie. One of the ones used in the movie. It was $5,000. Arnie wouldn't buy it for me. No. There's no Howard the Duck. No, of course not. You know, not every bad movie can be Howard the Duck, I guess. I believe I made the joke saying that if I paid for that cosmic key, I'd have spent more than they did on the movie. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that is kind of impressive. I don't think I would pick it out of a lineup, but... uh... Are they trying to rip off not only Star Wars, because that's very obvious in Skeletor on the throne and... Well, you have his guards that look like Death Star gunners or Black Stormtroopers. It's very... Emperor walking in with his troops at the beginning. His throne room is the same. You have Gwildor who talks like Yoda and takes them into his little hut. But he has a really tiny door, but it has really high ceilings. I don't get that. But yeah, it's all very Star Warsy. I feel, at this point. 
at the beginning, but Menahem, the producer, you know, he is known for just being like, I saw this movie, I love it, put it in this movie, you know, like, I think that his canon film works are mosaics or grab bags <laughs> of lots of other movies. I do feel like, yeah, we start off in Star Wars. I wanted to see a ripoff Star Wars, but no, we step into Back to the Future. Yes, that's where I'm going. I mean, we get the principal from Back to the Future as an antagonist yes. here. The prom theme, all of yeah, it. Yeah, I was just surprised. The musical guy that wants the girl, yeah. Yeah, only with just a little bit more pathos instead of an Oedipal complex. We get Courtney Cox playing a <laughs> high schooler, I guess. I mean, she doesn't look high school age to me in this, and especially the guy she's with, Kevin, looked at least college age. I thought he was a pretty hard 25. I thought for a long time I didn't catch that she was graduating high school the number of times I'd seen this, and I thought that she was just like an older girl like in their 20s mm-hmm. who was leaving shithole town for another shithole town. Now, we all know Courtney Cox. Do you guys know Robert Duncan McNeil? No. Mm-mm. It took me a while to place it, and I did have to look it up, but I'm like, that face looks familiar. He actually went on to have a career. He was, for seven seasons, a regular on Star Trek Voyager. Oh. Uh, which one is he? He was like the lieutenant, the really cocky lieutenant, the blonde one. Oh, he's not one of the ones I remember. His, his Lieutenant Paris? Vaguely. A vague name. I mean, I know he paled in comparison to Janeway and Chipotle or whatever his name is. Chipotle? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the ones I remember. And then there was the Black Vulcan. But yeah, I don't remember him so much. But I think I do. Yeah, there was like a white guy in the background. <laughs> the one who wasn't the doctor. Okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we got those two... And I was just shocked. I I mean, he's pretending to be a musician or desires to be a musician. I thought for sure that we were seeing like a St. Elmo's Fire kind of thing about two people down on their luck after graduating college and still hanging out at high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I guess we're supposed to believe they actually go there, even though we never see them have any friends. No. We never see them attend a class. This is all a one night in the life of. No, no. no. We never see any other people. I want to stress, <laughs> this is a town populated by three, I think. There's the cop, and then there's these two, and maybe a couple other people that come in and out. But there are no extras here. Hold on. There's the Linda Hamilton lookalike that works at the diner with her. Yeah, the diner was actually full. All right. So Julie, Courtney Cox's character, has lost her parents in a plane crash and has just decided to quit her fast food job. Okay, fine. I've I've done the same for lesser reasons. And quit high school before prom. Prom is hours away. But she's going to get on an 8.30 flight to go across the country to New Jersey and start over because... New Jersey is where it's at? Yes. New Jersey was the hotbed of success and opportunity in the 80s, Stuart. Yeah. She was, I think, in Los Angeles or somewhere around here. They mentioned at some point the parents died on a plane trip to Catalina Island, which is just off our shore. Well, and they were going to go to the beach, but then they flew instead. And in a lot of the shots, if they're trying to be Middle America, they did not even try to hide the palm trees. Yeah, it's not Middle America for sure. So, yes, she's leaving Los Angeles for New Jersey <laughs> on the night of her prom 
while not quite breaking up with her boyfriend, like she's bringing him a bucket of ribs and <laughs> acting like this is their final date together. Can we go to the cemetery for you drop me <laughs> off to the airport? He's able to talk her into staying for his sound check before they play prom. He is in the band that is playing prom and she will stay for the soundtrack. So they end up g- going to this gym. But yeah, this is a baffling character. We spend way too much time on them too i mean and by that i mean we spend like five minutes or seven but (laughs) uh, we just got the eternians here on earth but yet if we're going to say this is a whole bunch of 80s films put in the blender marjorie when you call the other waitress a linda hamilton lookalike i got it this is terminator a waitress by day who leaves her normal job and then gets pursued by evil forces from another time yeah, you're right. I, I was thinking Star Trek Four, but you're right. This makes a little more sense to think of it as Terminator, that yeah, people from the future or another world are coming to not necessarily kill her, but they because they wind up finding the cosmic key, it's separated from He-Man as they fly through the portal, and it just so happens to land in the proximity of where her parents' graves are. And I want to give the film credit for that one special effect the little claw machine like hook that comes and retrieves the key after the others have jumped through the portal it's called a grappling hook yeah but it reminded me like the claw machine where i win you stuffed animals that was actually pretty cool didn't man at arms have that wasn't that part of his toy yes it was yeah no it may have been on his vehicle it has been 25 35 years yeah At any rate, yeah, they were able to grab it, and then they lost it, and then this middle act of the movie is passing the quote-unquote Japanese synthesizer around. The kids think because it's making musical tones that he can incorporate it into his band or something, and he's going to go off to his friend Charlie, who owns a music uh, instrument store, and try and figure it out while she gets attacked in the movie's second exciting action scene. This fish-out-of-water bit, is the only thing I remembered coming back to this movie. I had meta-knowledge that Marjorie had said that's the cosmic key, and I said, what's a cosmic key? (gasps) I remembered Dolph Lundgren being in it. I remembered not liking it. But for some reason, burned into my mind is Tila eating barbecue ribs and going, (laughs) we're eating an animal? Really? That's what you remember? (laughs) That is what I remember. (laughs) Aren't these, like primitive Conan-like warriors? Wouldn't they kill for their food? What is she eating? They have a very advanced society and they're all vegetarians. <laughs> yeah, that was what I wanted to know is, like, can we get back to Eternia? Can this movie actually, you know, the whole battle is for Eternia and Grayskull. We barely have any understanding about what that means. And all of a sudden we're in the 80s. I, I do feel like that's a horrible mistake. If they wanted to come here, we at least needed one great battle to introduce us to the landscape of where these people come from and who they are. But instead, yeah, we have people that look more at home in the 80s, that she should just go jazzercise and <laughs> and stay here. <laughs> she could lead the vegan brigade. <laughs> Maybe she's gluten-free, too. But we do get, I'm going to use this term loosely, action, in that Skeletor sends four... Bounty his, hunters. I was going to say henchmen, but... I equated them to the bounty hunters on Darth Vader's ship when he's telling them to go get Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. I can definitely see that. There are some parallels there. And as you alluded to earlier, Stuart, I mean, we get Beast Man, my very first action figure. Hold on, I can name them all without even looking. 
This is kind of frightening. You have Karg, Sarod, Blade, and Beastman. And I was really disappointed Blade is not Wesley Snipes. It is not. But again, you've got four guys that look like they're not from the same time period. Or from the same toy line, because only one of these was a figure. The other three were made up. Well, and Karg looks like Eddie from the Iron Maiden album covers with the big white hair, (laughs) the skeletal look. It's very, very odd. Sarod looked familiar to me, but I couldn't place him. But yeah, they couldn't, I guess, afford to make a triclops and a trap jaw and a merman suit. I don't know why they couldn't find a creature from the Black Lagoon suit and call him Merman. I mean, it looks like they took the cowardly lion suit from Wizard of Oz and called it Beast Man. Yeah. Beast Man spoke, right? This was weird that he was just growling. Beast Man spoke in the cartoon. Here, his jaw didn't move. There's funny stories about how he couldn't close his mouth and his chin piece was filling with his own drool. <laughs> so no, he just kind of <laughs> growls. Gross. But they do the typical canon moves here. I, I gotta say that the, it was... They were borrowing props. Like, Sarod has these fingernails, which are straight up Superman 4 and, like, Nuclear Man fingernails. And, like, Blade has... He shoots darts, which they always did in all those canon ninja movies. I do feel like they just... Why we have these characters is because they just raided the prop shop and said, Okay, you look futuristic enough. You're our bad guys. And they didn't try to recreate the characters that we knew. They did make figures of these after the fact. Oh, interesting. So these were incorporated? Yeah. These three extra henchmen plus Gwildor were made into figures around this time. They were hoping again this movie would pick up interest. So while it makes no sense in relation to the cartoon or the little mini comics, Gwildor came with a cosmic key and eventually Sarod, Karg, and Blade made it in. So for people who are He-Man fans now, but didn't live through the original experience, they're like going back and collecting the vintage He-Man toys. And a lot of people are those things I sold for a lot of money on eBay just a few years ago. They may be like, yes, this has Blade, Sarod, and Karg. And I'm like, who the bleep are Blade, Sarod, and Karg when I'm in theaters? This is not my He-Man. Definitely not. And they're not particularly adept at capturing a teenage girl either. I mean, this, this chase scene we get is pretty pathetic. Hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. My favorite is Sarod. That face is reminding me of someone I can't place. Not the actor himself, because it's under so much makeup. But the way he moves, it's like, and they did have snake men as an enemy in He-Man. I wondered if they were trying to do that, but why they didn't pick one of them is a little bit beyond me. But he's my favorite of the group, whereas I expected to like Beast Man going in. But yeah, they can't capture two teenagers in a high school gym. It was very Keystone Cops, especially when they left the gym and were chasing her on the streets. They were inept at every turn. Or stormtroopers. Yes. I mean, they have blasters and they can't hit anything. Nope. Well, which is why when they go back, Skeletor vaporizes. I think it's Sarah that, yeah. that gets whacked. <laughs> and he's like, all right, Evil Lynn, you're up. Now, now, let's talk about Evil Lynn for a second. Yeah. I mean, this is someone I would put in charge of a death crew. I mean, those eyes get you the part. Meg Foster was in They Live, and those are her real eyes, and they are stunning. I mean, I think she's beautiful. I actually was confused. I knew she looked familiar, but I guess I was still thinking Superman, because I thought this was Ursa from Superman 2. 
Oh, okay, that lady. Yeah, I could I could see that. And she would have made an, a very good evil Lynn also. But I think Meg Foster, with her piercing eyes, has got it down. I think she had an amazing body for the role because she had to wear a body stocking with a little bit of armor over it. Apparently it bruised her groin. That armor piece was 45 pounds. Ah! And very heavy on the groin. I go my entire life with trying to avoid groin bruises, so... It explains why no one in this movie is running. It's like all these outfits are very constrictive. Well, I think she was good because... She was very menacing, and she was kind of like Skeletor's right-hand girl. Was she the lover, too? I got some flirtatious chemistry between them as well, which made me think of bedroom scenes I didn't want to imagine. Yeah, I never thought that, but I guess if you Does he have a boner? Oh! Arnie! (laughs) Arnie! Well, skeleton boner. No, we got it. Yeah, we don't... Don't explain that joke. Actually, Stuart, I read an interview with the actress. You got what she was going for mostly, but maybe not as deep. She viewed this role as Lady Macbeth of the Masters of the Universe. (laughs) Oh. Oh, that's what a good actress has to do when they've signed on to Masters of the Universe. Okay. Yeah. Poor girl. I'm in Shakespeare, damn it. (laughs) And they do have Skeletor quoting Shakespeare. He quotes Richard III a little later on. But she played this role like she was Skeletor's lover and aide. And as he becomes more obsessed with the key and more ignoring of her, that's when she feels spurned, much like Lady Macbeth would abandon her husband in that classic. I thought the sorceress was more of a babe than they have her in this movie. Yeah, I thought she would have been too. And she was kind of like, you know, the Jedi librarian. I mean, she didn't really do much except stand there with some plastic crap on her head. And she's much older and she gets older still. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I liked the cartoon sorceress who was very powerful and turned into a bird. Yeah, as I say, she was a bird. But... Here, that's not what we get at all. And is she supposed to be the... I can't figure out what part she really plays. Is she the ticking clock? Is that he's trying to kill her and if they can't get back in time? We're told a lot of different things that never quite connect. But my understanding is that Sorceress was in control of Castle Grayskull, has been imprisoned. Skeletor, something about the moon. We never get a moon shot, but he says something that by the full moon, he'll have the power. Wait a second. No, Sorceress gives He-Man his powers. And if she dies, he has no power. I didn't get that. Okay. You mean Dolph Lundgren could be giving even less than he already is? That's yes. amazing. It, it, it could be like two old men fighting. Mm. It isn't? <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Thank you for helping explain that. I wasn't getting this. And I did watch this twice. Once with the commentary on, once without. And I was, I guess, so enamored with seeing somebody from the comics in here that I just went with it. But yeah, they kind of Obi-Wan the sorceress here. She's not supposed to be young and vital anymore. No. And in fact, she's played by the actress who played Courtney Cox's mom on Friends. Well, there you go. Maybe this is how she got that gig. But yeah, Evil Lynn, I'll give you. I think out of all of the characters we've seen, this is, if not the most successful transplant from the cartoon, at least the best actor or performance we get in the movie. And that's not a compliments that I think Meg Foster gets too often in her career. I didn't think she was very good in They Live at All, but 
I'll say she's not a good transplant from the comic or the toys, but she's the best reimagining. I mean, they completely reimagined Tila and Man at Arms and poorly. Yes. <laughs> this one is the closest in spirit to that character. And it was just so 80s, too, to always have your right-hand person be a woman and be very evil and wicked. But you can't have Tila like she was in the cartoon, because then all of a sudden you have a Conan the Barbarian movie. Which is what they should have made. That's yeah. kind of the cartoon. I don't think that that's a terrible way to go. I, I'm sure they would have been happy with those profits. I even would have been fine if they dressed her in, like, the snakeskin headdress, and when they got to Earth, they're like, we must disguise ourselves in human clothes. But no, we those two and Beast Man kind of fail for me. Evil Lynn, I wish she did more, though. She's, you mentioned story you don't think Frank Langella moves. Evil Lynn doesn't move far from him. She's constantly left behind with these death squads, and we get so little of her in the movie. She's the Darth Vader to his emperor. She's got a bruising crotch. What do you want her to do? (laughs) But, uh, you know, she does have, like, wickedness. Like, she makes a microwave blow up, and she puts a collar of truth on the Kevin character to make him talk. I mean, there's a lot of going back and forth about trying to find this key. She does get more lines. Yeah. I, I, You know, at one point, she even impersonates Courtney Cox's mother, the dead one, that she takes remarkably well. Like, she runs out, hugs her, is like, oh, okay, you want me to go get that thing with the lights? Okay, I'll give you the, the magical thing that all these creatures are wanting to kill me for. I didn't like that part. I think that's just really just off the wall and seems... I didn't feel like that she was that broken up. You didn't think the rest of the movie was off the wall? This thing's off the wall, Marjorie. <laughs> it is. It's it's so bad, it's good. I half agree with you. <laughs> now, Man at Arms, I felt they did a pretty good job on his costume. He was basically just not wearing neon orange and green. Yeah, no spandex. Yeah, he he's just like an army guy. Yeah, and... He came off very William Hurt to me with that mustache and the attitude. I looked up the actor. He's best known for soap operas. I don't know him that well. I don't know him at all. But I thought he was kind of funny in that ironic, I'm going to eat these ribs and like it way, as a contrast to the stoicness of He-Man and Tila. But Tila got the best damn joke of the entire movie. Oh, no. Don't tell me. Woman at arms. Yes. Because she broke the fourth wall, did a little bit of a wink and a smirk. I know. She breaks the fourth wall. She literally turns to the audience. She's so proud of that joke. Yes, she is. (laughs) Did you guys get from the movie that she is Man-at-Arm's daughter? Yes. No. They said it. I didn't get it. I know they said it, but when watching the movie the first time, I'm like, if I didn't know it, I don't think that it was driven home enough that that was the relationship. Did it matter? She also gets the second best line of the movie. Marjorie kind of pointed out to me. You were commenting as we watched because He-Man goes off and comes back with Courtney Cox and Tila's kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> there was some jealousy there. Yeah, I oh, definitely got yeah. some. Like, I-, I think that oh. Tila and He-Man in an alternate universe may have been lovers. Well, I think she was always kind of the love interest. She-Ra was the sister. Yeah. Tila it was kind of the Lois Lane Clark Kent thing in the Masters of the Universe cartoon. But here, yeah, I 
think that they should have played that up a little bit more. And I actually liked Tila in this to a point. Again, like Evelyn, I wish she'd done more. But Chelsea Field, I think she had a good look for this. I thought she was amusing. And she was reminding me a lot of Sif from Thor. And I, Oh, yeah. Thor, Sif, very much like Tila. Because you've got the woman who, if you squint... She might be kind of pretty. I know how you feel about Sif, so it's okay, Arnie. Unconventionally pretty women. And it's kind of, she's kind of tough. She's not too girly, except when there's a man involved, which is how we all should be. And we're going to be reviewing her again. She ended up in Stephen King's The Dark Half. No. Lucky girl. Well, you know what? She doesn't have many options. It should be said, what's she going to do? Gweldor? I mean, there's not a lot of available men to her. If Man at Arms is her dad, I didn't realize that. She, she doesn't have a lot of dating options. Uh, Gweldor is, I think, supposed to be the funny character that's kind of making the shenanigans happen. He Like, he steals a car at some point, a pink Cadillac they're riding around. I, I, tonally, I think it's really hard to know what's going on in this movie. It's photographed so dark, you get the sense that they want this brooding action movie, and yet all of this slapstick feels very kiddy. It's the kids' movie that no teenager would want to see. I actually think it was filmed rather dark to hide a lot of the studio lots and maybe some of the stuff in the background and maybe that was the reason because you catch signs of businesses that weren't listed for promotional considerations like they just like all right we have one block and i don't care if you're gonna see h and r block three times and three subsequent shots it's gonna happen and it just it felt like they were hiding stuff and they could make it less flashy if they could just keep it dark it's amazing what happens to this movie around the midway point it's around 45 minutes in that the sun's gone down and everything is just either taking place in of all places a music shop or on a single city block yeah that i want to point that out the biggest action set piece of the entire movie is shot in like a sam goody or something (laughs) like that where like literally they're they're blowing away synthesizers and breaking guitars I mean, that couldn't be more small scale. Like, I really can't believe their biggest action scene is at Charlie's when everyone is descended there to try and get the cosmic key. And the way Skeletor has been tracking them is because he has a cosmic key. And whenever someone on Earth uses the cosmic key, it like sends out a find my eye key (laughs) signal. And so he can see where it is. And because this Kevin thinks it's a music box then when he takes it into the music shop and everything and pushes the red button because you know all musical instruments also come with laser light show holograms then Skeletor is able to again send out as Marjorie calls them the bounty hunters I loved it when anytime someone activated the laser light show on the key and people would look up they were all looking at a different spot and it was not the same (laughs) And we also had the introduction of actor James Tolkien as Detective Lubbock. And I also think he should have been running around telling the crew they were a bunch of slackers. Yeah, this guy, you recognize him from Back to the Future, Top Gun. I remember him from Turk 182. I don't know if people remember that movie, but... uh, I hadn't thought about that in a long time, Turk 182. I remember the movie. You know where I knew him from most at this point? 
Remington Steel, the TV series where he was the cop constantly chasing Remington Steel. And that is his job is to be the wet blanket, to always be, you know, dousing our protagonist's dreams and telling them it's not going to work out. I can't even figure out why he keeps, you know, following these teenagers and the synthesizer. I don't know. Why does he think that they should be involved in the burning of the gym? That's basically the cops get involved because the gym burns down. And I guess because Courtney Cox was the only one there. I mean, Kevin wasn't even there when the attack happened. But but there's a whole bunch of victim blaming going on because Kevin shows up to look for her and they immediately treat him like a criminal and they bring out her burned up purse and he freaks out and they're like, well, you got to come with us, son. And it's just like, I don't understand yeah. where they're coming from. I guess they needed an antagonistic yes. person other than Skeletor. Yeah, Skeletor should be antagonistic enough. We shouldn't need this bald cop. Admittedly, though, he brings presence to this film. He brings something to this film nobody else has, and that's original characterization. Yeah. I mean, it's the same role he always plays, but that makes him one of the better characters in this film. It might have been more helpful if they started in reverse. If we started on Earth and saw teenagers and they summoned these, you know, people from another galaxy onto them, it might have made more sense. But he does feel like a weird inheritance after we've started with the epic scope of a space battle, that he's basically the the uh, the antagonist for much of the middle of this movie, kvetching about how he wants to understand this musical device. It doesn't feel like the movie we wanted. We can all agree, whether you're a He-Man fan or, or newbie, He-Man is not a big part of this middle of this movie. It is more about this cop harassing these teens over this musical device. Yeah, it's telling when my favorite moment of the second act is when there's like a stormtrooper who literally has like a dark helmet helmet on talking to Evil Lynn about interference and then blowing up a microwave oven. That's like my favorite moments from this entire thing is just the reaction of the cop and Kevin when that microwave oven explodes and then the cop thinks Kevin did it. I think this was trying to be like a teen franchise and get the kids that were growing out of He-Man, and that's why we get so much of the teen angst and boyfriend-girlfriend problems, because at this point, I was too old for He-Man. I was in high school. I think I had just started my freshman year, so I was still on that cusp of, you know, liking adult things and liking kid things. And my brother was about 10, 10 to 11, so he would be graduating out of He-Man, and this did manage to keep him in for a little bit longer. You know, Gwildor even says at some point, I think it's in the music shop, quote-unquote battle, you're all acting like cartoons. And I think that that's supposed to be a wink-wink, you know, joke that, like, we wouldn't want this to look like a cartoon. No, guys, we want this to be the Filmation live-action version. I mean, that is that is the mistake, is that they have gotten so far away from what people enjoyed about the cartoon. I think Canon Films was burned. I think that they had tried to make a kiddie sci-fi movie, Invaders from Mars, that lost a lot of money. And I think they were trying to go adult. They also made that Lou Ferrigno Hercules movie. Lou insisted it be made for kids. And I just think that they felt like they wanted an adult action movie. And adults didn't come to this unless they were bringing kids. That was a miscalculation. But about 50 minutes in, I feel like we're starting to get back to the Masters of the Universe feel because I noticed some of the toys I used to have showing up like the Battle Ram, this floating sled and everything as Eternia starts to invade. Now the effects, 
they're real bad. I mean, they are awful. They're not real bad. I think they're okay. I mean... The lasers are bad. The lasers are terrible. The hoverboard scenes are awful. I could probably film a better one on my phone, which is probably more advanced than the cameras I used at the time, I guess. So you know, but not- it, you go back to some of those 80s movies, and they had effects like this. I mean, I don't think Ghostbusters and some of those effects hold up. You know, I... And they do. And what about... Terminator 1, made three years earlier, also had hovercraft that looked much better. But you're a little bit more forgiving in a comedy than you are in an action movie. Yeah. And this is what this is, is an action movie. It's okay if the effects look bad in a comedy because you're there for the comedy. This is an action movie, and for a lot of people, they're bringing a cartoon to life, and you want these fantastical things to happen. And when it doesn't, it is a bit of a letdown, and the hoverboard is absolutely laughable. Well, here's the thing, is that with Skeletor coming to Earth, you expect him, again, to do something, but no, he's just sitting on a chair in this very slow-moving parade... It's so weird because it feels like it's a Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade and no one no one is around. No one in this town has noticed that aliens are flying around on hoverboards shooting lasers and this giant skeleton man is going down Main Street on this enormous, you know, whatever it is. Well, it's Jabba's sail barge. Let's let's be honest here. Yeah. It looks like Jabba's sail barge from Return of the Jedi. And the reason you don't see anybody raising alarm in the townspeople is because they couldn't afford extras. Yeah, they used them all in the restaurants. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> My point is it really takes you out to see a big battle on Earth in which there are no Earthlings. It's just... It's strange. And, you know, yes, some of this stuff here on hoverboards is not great, but I don't think it's so terrible that if the movie were good, you wouldn't still be into it. The problem is, is that this has been a rather dull film, and then now we're, quote, getting the action, and it's this. It's not that it's dull, Stuart. It's that it's, there's long periods of time without any action, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not that it's dull it's just that it's boring no i mean the thing is i i get that you'd want more he-man battles i get that yeah but we do get a he-man money shot towards the end when they go back to eternia when he-man is captured because he gets captured here soon he surrenders really yeah he sacrifices himself he, they're just like your friends i'm like suddenly he's friends with all these people Well, they did get the cosmic key because Courtney Cox's character, Julie, is an idiot. Yes, she fell hook, line, and sinker for Evelyn, who used her mystical powers to appear as Julie's dead mom. And Julie has absolutely no problem whatsoever with seeing her dead mother saying she's like a secret agent who has been undercover and needs the cosmic key. Julie questions none of this. She really... Mm. A secret agent that's dressed like a teacher in a denim vest. Yeah, but He-Man gets it back. I mean, he, on that hoverboard, uses the grappling hook to get it right back. I mean, he has... The claw thingy, Stuart. It's a claw thingy. The claw thingy, (laughs) exactly. Um, But, you know, he has the upper hand, and yet, at the end of the day, somehow, the stormtroopers have rounded up the teenagers, and He-Man thinks it's a worthy trade to save their life by staying behind with them while Skeletor gets the key and goes back to Eternia to get a gold-plated suit of armor. Now, I would have thought, if you surrender, that you give up, right? I think the deal is, He-Man will give himself up if Skeletor and his henchmen... Leave Earth alone, leave Man-at-Arms alone, leave Tila alone, right? They have both keys, what possible harm can be done here, but He-Man is this defiant person. I mean, 
he starts saying, no, I'm going to stop you. I won't bow to you. If you've given up, then this is just a way for Skeletor to go, all right, well, then we're going to go back and kill everybody that we just saved. It was really just an excuse to get Dolph Lundgren to take off his shirt. Or what he was little he was wearing. Yeah, I mean, it's not like we didn't see Nip the whole time on him. Well, he was the same color as his nipples, too. I don't know what kind of tanning bed he was going to, <laughs> but he ended up nipple colored in this whole thing. His nipples were just little bumps. And I'm like, how does that happen? But I think it's, this is maybe for the moms or some dads, I don't know. And he gets whipped. It's, you know. That whip effect. Oh, that was bad. And, and Dolph Lundgren's trying to move like he's being whipped by this laser whip is hilarious. I blame the animator because the animator should have made the whip look like it's hitting with Dolph's movements, not the other way around. Yeah, it was bad. I don't know if this scene is any worse than Revenge of the Sith, guys. I mean, you can complain about it all you want, but I mean, yeah, it's just the part where the the villain gets to cackle that he has the power and and what have you. It's a torment scene, and yeah, maybe it's like bondage for those that have been having that fantasy, but I don't think that this is terrible. It's just nothing's happening. It's it's just Langella sitting on a chair again. I think you're taking an unfair swipe at Revenge of the Sith to say that this scene is every bit as exciting as Anakin storming the Jedi Temple. I mean, I think you're being very unfair in that comparison. Uh, Unfair to Revenge of the Sith. But this is, yes, of course the bad guy gets to cackle. We've seen Lex Luthor do it in Superman 4. We've seen it in... Neil before Zod, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're always going to have the hero get beaten down and have one last triumphant battle against the evil guy. That's just a formula that works. Yeah, but his line sticks with me. I wrote it down. I'm like, this is very strange. Skeletor at one point says, Does the loneliness of good equal the loneliness of evil? I believe that's one of the lines his son wrote. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm like, we need to get a therapist in here. So you're feeling lonely. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about your feelings. Because if you're feeling lonely, maybe that's where we begin here. Maybe you don't need the power. Maybe you just need (laughs) Evil Lynn to uh, stop giving you so much shade. I don't know. (laughs) Evil Lynn. But, you know, Julie is dying. Back on Earth, they left them, quote unquote, alive, but she was given some injury that is growing and could take her life. And they have to figure a way back to the sorceress. It was like the Emperor's Lightning in Star Wars. It hit her leg and it injected some sort of poison in her. Mm. And now her leg is a very fake looking festering pool of goo. And I think it's just a mistake they killed the lizard dude. The lizard dude should have bit and had the poison and thus Mm -hmm. having this and making some of the henchmen look like they actually were worth keeping around. (laughs) They were completely worthless, I want to say. And this is where Kevin's magical musical prowess comes into play. You know, but that's good. I think that actually, if you are going to make it about musical teenagers in the 80s, giving him this moment to, you know, the key has been reset, so they don't know how to play it, but he has perfect pitch. He can hear the melody in his head, he can replay the it, and he can even write the last two notes that are going to get them back to attorney. I actually think that this was pretty good writing for this kind of movie. Sure. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to make a human uh, central to this, if you insist that teenagers must be involved, that this guy is able to save his girlfriend by opening up the door with a synthesizer is, you know... God help us, the right move for this He-Man. And that does get us back to Eternia. And I think Eternia's Castle Grayskull, I read about it, they, like, made the largest soundstage that had been seen in Hollywood in 40 years at this point to film this. And it certainly 
feels more grand than anything that we were getting in Los Angeles. It also feels more populated, albeit mostly with black stormtroopers. And this final battle, though, I can be forgiving of it because of what I read. They were so close to done with this movie, but they'd run five million over budget. The plug was literally pulled. They had no ending. Correct. It was just done. And they finally got like a million dollars or something to go back and film this like music video of them fighting in front of a spotlight. But it's just, it robs this ending a lot of its grandeur. At one point, Karg is like, sent away, like Evil Lynn says, go get the battle station. I got excited. I'm like, you mean there's another set? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, there's no other set. He's just going to literally walk out of the picture. I don't think the henchmen get defeated at all. Evil Lynn, Karg, whoever that guy is, Blade, I guess his name was, none of those people are defeated. We do get just one shot of, yeah, our Darth Vader being thrown down the, uh, the pit abyss of, I don't know. Okay, so I'm glad you, you got that too, because, yeah, that's very Emperor and at the end of Return of the Jedi. Sure, yeah. I'm- the reason we don't see Blade is because Blade, the actor, was actually Dolph Lundgren's sword master and trainer on the set. He was really a sword fighter, so they had him play Skeletor at the end, but then they weighted him down with this gold headdress and thing, so he couldn't move either, and so that's why we get the fight we get. I mean, they have a tremendous swordsman there, and they put him in such an outfit, he can't see or move. You think they'd make that out of plastic or something to make the mobility happen, but it is like two, watching two old men fight over the sugar packet at Denny's. And I think they would have, again, if, if they had had the time to design this. The technicians all Last for a year in order to do prototypes and test movement. I mean, it, it, you learn through your mistakes. You design one and you're like, okay, I can't move in this. We'll design another one and we'll fix that. Well, here they had to go with all the prototypes. What you're seeing are basic concepts that they could have finessed to make it work. I mean, I do think that part of the problem is even on this budget, they could have had a lot more if Canon Films wasn't screaming they had to get this movie out by summer 1987. I think that really cost this movie. If they had waited another year, maybe... Then they would have run out of money as a studio and it never would have been released. Yeah, admittedly. There's no good option for this movie, but I do feel like... It's unfortunate that some of these good ideas, these technical things, I do think the throne room looks good. The suit, well, I mean, it's it makes a statement. I'll leave it at that. I mean, I do think that they could have made some of these concepts work if they had had more time. But instead, yeah, we have a very, very unsatisfying climax. The sword fight reminds me of our Star Wars movie, Stuart. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> I mean... Like when we were seven and just no choreography here, there's choreography, but it's like they're still rehearsing. Like I've seen the behind the scenes of Star Wars where they do their lightsaber fights and they start doing them slow and then they get faster and faster with practice here. It's like they're still doing the slow. Yeah, we get the He-Man money shot, though, too. What we've all been waiting for this entire time, I guess, is watching the cartoon is you finally get like a few minutes from the end where he takes his sword out of the holder in Castle Grayskull, holds it in the air and does his big, I have the power. Yeah, but he doesn't have any extra power after he does it. It's not like he suddenly magically transformed into a better swordsman. But it's He-Man! Yeah, yeah you're right. He-Man! To me, in 1987, that was too little too late. Oh, it is way too little too late. And to be yeah. 
truly honest. I never understood what that did. That was supposed to transform Prince Adam into He-Man, but since Prince Adam looked exactly like He-Man, but just with, you know, more clothes, I never really understood what doing that did. It made him, I think, even more muscular. I never saw Prince Adam without a shirt on. No, it was, but he had the same <laughs> body type. I literally think they just used the same character design and just... It caused his shirt to come off. Yeah. But, and to be in his it. little undies. Yes. And it turned Cringer into Battle Cat. Well, that, yes, is no <laughs> But can you find Cringer or Battle Cat here? I can find some Cringers here. (laughs) No, this movie, yeah, don't pretend like you can latch on to what was going on in that cartoon here in the final seconds. You'd do better not to even remind us this was He-Man. And it's over. I mean, it's, it's over very, very quickly. In fact, that's in fact, that's one of the lines in the pickup is Dolph Lundgren just going, it's over. And Skeletor goes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it was the most anticlimactic ending ever. Victory. I mean, okay, whatever. I I do love the fact that our our cop Lubick is there with some babe we haven't ever seen before. She probably was on craft services. And, you know, he's like, I'm staying. I got my woman. My life is so much better here on Eternia. Yeah, I watched this a second time thinking that in the excitement of the final battle i missed the scene where the cop picked up a babe but when i watched it with commentary no this is the first time we're seeing her i guess in eternia bald jerks get all the luck yeah you know (laughs) you 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 play the earthling card oh you're from another planet that probably meant something but uh you know again the women don't have many options here that's why he-man gets all the girls i'm convinced if you look at the way Lundgren is like passing off Julie to the boyfriend there, he's got a very self-satisfied smile in the way that he's like, <laughs> now you take care of her. I'm like, oh, they fucked, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm done with her. Yeah, you can have her back. Oh. Yeah, you're always seeing this. You see Leia and Chewbacca, and now you see Julia and He-Man. I'm telling you, you got to read between the lines on these movies, but it's there. You go look at Lundgren, and it's not like, I'm so happy that I saved your relationship. It's something else there. It's enjoy my sloppy seconds. I got Tila now. (laughs) Here you go, kid. Well, yes, then we get our Back to the Future ending that I'm like, it's so obvious. Gweldor's like, I can send you back to any time. Does Julie think he means the Wild West? (laughs) (laughs) Your Billy Barty impression is spot on. (laughs) Have you been practicing all night? No, I have not. But he's a pretty easy impersonation. But... Yeah, that they do this Back to the Future ending. All she needs is a monster truck for Marty McFly here. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, and I didn't spoil that for you because you didn't remember that. Not at all. Yeah. I'm like, how is she going to get over the death of her parents? I kind of thought it was convoluted that she blamed herself for a plane crash. I mean, it's very much a... Rube Goldian kind of blame there. Well, I mean, honestly, if it was a problem with the plane, it would have happened on the next plane flight they took anyway. So, I mean, come on. It wasn't even a commercial. He did the flying. It was, I mean, Catalina, you can't land a a plane there. It would have to be like a two-seater. Yeah, and so that's why she steals their plane keys yes and saves their life not that they wouldn't have like a backup set of keys and go, damn it, we're going to Catalina anyway. (laughs) Right. Taxi. (laughs) And then my mind was going to other places. I'm like, well, now final destination, death has marked them. They had the premonition to not get on the plane. Now they're going to die in a car crash. I just can't believe she goes to bed in that nighty. 
And then runs out in the middle of the street in it. Well, that's more demure than most of the clothes we've seen in this movie. It's perfectly fine for the street. It's a little warm for a California bedroom. True story. I was given at one of my bridal showers a nightgown just like that. Oh, made for a sexy wedding night, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but did you get a blue crystal from the sorceress that I suppose healed her wound? We never got complete confirmation that she wasn't still dying from that gash on her leg. But she uh, went back it, in time it, before it hit, right? Yeah. Oh, no, I, the sorceress healed her. Uh, maybe. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, the way that this thing's come together. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway. And we get one more replay of He-Man doing the pose. And then they had another ending here. They had in mind ways to go into the sequel. Mm -hmm. In the comic adaptation of this, after the battle, Man-at-Arms comes from the depths of Castle Grayskull with, you're going to find this to be yet another movie ripoff, and it's a very obvious one, a United States flag and NASA insignia that says Starfighter 5, July 10th, 2221, meaning Eternia was populated by humans from the future. <laughs> I think I uh, always believed that anyway. I always thought Prince Adam came to Eternia in a spaceship. In the cartoon, his mother was like in NASA and crashed on the planet. Okay, yeah. And that was it. But here they're going total Planet of the Apes. It's supposed to be a mind-blowing reveal. Mm-hmm. It's mind-blowing. Well, it's just as well that we end with Frank Langella spitting up water and and promising, uh, you know, who, what, his child? He probably did dress up for his child again as the Skeletor and, <laughs> and, and chase him around the living room. But uh, you're not coming back, Skeletor. You're not. I, I found this stinger scene to be just absolutely frightening. Well, they did plan for a sequel. Albert Pune, the one who I said I thought made this whole thing was championing that he would make Masters of the Universe 2 and then make Spider-Man. And they had Dolph Lundgren on a three-picture deal. Lundgren absolutely refused to come back. So they, I mean, they went into this. They recast him. Hmm. This was going forward, come hell or high water. Yes, (laughs) the new He-Man was going to be some surfer named Laird Hamilton. Oh, I know who that is. Yeah, he's he's a surfing icon, but not an actor. Does he look like He-Man? Kinda. Mm, I mean, he looks like a blonde surfer. With a thick neck, yeah. He could play He-Man. Well, they had the script. They had a couple of sets made. They had a budget of Masters of the Universe Part 2 at $4.5 million compared to the <laughs> $18 million of this. Which wasn't nearly what they needed to make this. Mattel gave the approval to bring more characters into the sequel. <laughs> More for less. That is going to be, it is a Walmart sequel. Okay, great. Good luck. And why didn't this travesty happen? Because of canon films collapsing? Pretty much. It kind of was made. They decided to rewrite the script, reuse some of the sets they'd built. It is now known as the Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle Cyborg. Oh, yes. Cyborg. Yes, that was still a canon film. Yeah, that is what ended up happening. And it was done by Pune, but the entire genesis of Cyborg was an attempt at a Masters of the Universe Part 2 for release. It was supposed to be out the next year in 1988, and it was going to have Skeletor going back to Earth and disguising himself as an evil industrialist who will destroy most of the world before He-Man can come and stop him. Of course. 
And it was going to end with Earth as a post-nuclear world, thus saying Eternia was Earth. This is this all sounds very expensive. Four point five million. <laughs> yeah, they're lucky to get Cyborg on the budget that they got. So I'm glad I'm glad this didn't happen. I imagine that they imagine they'd have like paper cutouts of ships and somebody would be hanging on a string in front of the screen, and that's how they would have to do it to meet the four point five million. They must realize that. The box office on this did not meet their expectations that they would do just as well to get Cyborg as Masters of the (laughs) Universe 2. And Cyborg was direct to video. I remember seeing video on demand ads for it back in the day. It intrigued me more than probably Masters of the Universe 2 would have. But does Masters of the Universe have the power? Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Masters of the Universe to other human beings? Marjorie? Of course I do. I have fond memories of this. If you were a kid in the 80s, if you ever collected He-Man toys or had a sibling that did, you're probably going to get a kick out of this movie. I think you kind of have to go in and realize that you're not getting a Terminator level action movie, despite what Dolph Lundgren wanted. But it's fun. It's kind of campy. There's stuff you can giggle at. I have a good time every time I watch it, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's very Star Wars-y. So keep that in mind when you're like looking at the Death Star gunners instead of Skeletor's henchmen. And the end scene is very Return of the Jedi. But I like it. I think it's fun and I recommend that you see it. To clarify, are you saying this is a good movie that people should see? Or are you saying this is a nostalgic guilty pleasure that you're giving the brown arrow to? That would be B, sir. Okay, so a brown arrow. Stuart. Yeah, and I'm surprised to hear you say this, Marjorie, because I would think that someone that loved the toys in the cartoon would be the harshest critics of this movie because... But she didn't. Her brother did. Okay. I was tangentially involved in it because of my brother. Yeah, I mean, they can call this He-Man. It just doesn't even feel like He-Man. And I wasn't a huge advocate of that cartoon. I didn't watch it that often, but, you know, I knew it from Arnie playing with the toys, and even I felt like, where's Merman? Where's the theme song? Why didn't they do the cartoon as an adult coming back to it the trouble isn't that they didn't do the cartoon the trouble is that they didn't explain anything about the world we don't know who these people are they're all very generic the only thing that makes sense are the 80s stuff and all of this other stuff in Eternia Castle Grayskull all of its gobbledygook and just kind of goes over your head I mean I think again a charismatic lead when when you get Dolphed uh, you, you get a movie like this you it's impossible to connect with a movie that stars Dolph Lundgren he's just not a leading man and I also think they miscalculated by having teenagers and running from the kid origin I think that this movie would play better if instead of coming back to you know high school prom they found you know the Goonies or something like that the kids that played with the toys I think would have been better human foils for the Eternians but, you know, the surprise is it's not really a terrible film. I was expecting, like, a really low-rent, Reb Brown, Marvel TV movie kind of experience. It's not that. It's just kind of a blah version of, yeah, a lot of things that were popular in the 80s. It's Close Encounters, E.T., Superman, Star Wars, Back to the Future, all rolled in one with not an iota of those movies' appeal. It's a drab, dour, I wouldn't say it's a lot of fun actually, for kids or adults, but it's only a mild not recommend. It's just kind of an off fantasy. And I think you're being unfair saying this movie gets dolphed. 
there are so many more problems with this movie that it doesn't matter who you have in the lead role if you have this script and this production and everything else. Unless you got somebody who is willing to work strictly on a commission basis for the box office so they'd have more money to film. And the director did take money off his own salary so they could film the final scenes here. He paid for some of that himself. But Dolph can be good in a movie. I remember really liking Showdown in Little Tokyo. Now, I haven't seen this in like 20 years, but I remember liking it. I also remember liking Universal Soldier, which he co-did with Van Damme. And then we've already reviewed him in A View to a Kill and Rocky Four. He worked in those movies. He's barely in View to a Kill. Come on. Well, and this film, when I walked out of theaters in 87, even though I was no longer collecting He-Man, I probably was still watching the cartoons and reruns. And I walked out very pissed off because they didn't get He-Man right by not bringing the cartoon to life. Coming back as an adult, I remembered they didn't bring the cartoon to life, and I was just curious if they could give a good story. The answer is no, but it's not as bad as I thought. You say they need less fish out of water stuff, but that's the stuff that works for me. I actually like the teenage on the run, kind of back to the future, Terminator, my science project kind of thing they've got going on here a lot more than anything involving Skeletor. And I wish there was more of the stuff like Tila upset that she's eating barbecue ribs. I wish there was more interactions with Earth. And the cop is not that bad. But that's not any of what a He-Man movie should be. So taking it for what they gave us, that's fine. But to blame Dolph, who would you think could save this movie? Who do you think in this script with the role written could be better than Dolph. Admittedly, if they'd had more money, they could have brought in somebody to emote better with the words. That would improve it. Yeah. But I think the biggest villain in this movie is not Skeletor, it's the bankers. <laughs> and the result is, much like Superman 4 and Captain America 1990 and so many films Canon was doing at this time, an utter drab cheap mess. I could see why people would give it a brown arrow. I could see why people would think this is like the holiday special where they can go back and i could also see why fans of this kind of honestly low rent despite being over 20 million it still comes off very cheap action film would find enjoyment here i didn't it's gonna be a not recommend from me but i was really thinking it would be a brown arrow debacle and it just didn't reach that point <laughs> Yeah, that's what I said, is that you would think going into this, if, it, if there was a box office He-Man movie live action failure, oh, this is going to be hysterical. The truth is, they got close. I mean, I think that it could have worked, but there were just, it's just drab. This movie doesn't have any thrills to it. But I don't think it's supposed to be thrilling. It's definitely no. a trip down memory lane at this point, but it capitalized on the success of so many other things. And it did have a big opening weekend, but after that, it just tanked. So we don't need a sequel to this, but we're not going to get a sequel. But I do think we're going to have another Masters of the Universe film. This has been in development hell for several years. But now you have the effects that you could bring the cartoon to life. You have the ability to do that. And you have nostalgia for this line. In fact, in 2002, Masters of the Universe came back with the Masters of the Universe classics line. And while it was more collector aimed, 
it has found greater success in the 21st century than it did in the 20th. They've made over 120 figures between 2002 and now, whereas in the 80s, they only did about 80 or 90 figures. Oh, my God. Only. And they did try to bring this back. I went and I rewatched in 2002. They did another Masters of the Universe cartoon. And I watched it when it was first run. I think it was on Sci-Fi or Cartoon Network. And I watched a couple episodes and felt it was less Star Wars and more Lord of the Rings this time around. You'd think that, you know, after 2001, if you're going to try to do something, they put it together in that kind of vein. I watched a few episodes here. It is actually much better than the 80s cartoon. It has through lines and storylines. It's perhaps the best version of He-Man ever put into motion video versus comics or anything else. I think there could be a good He-Man film made. I think they will release it. Really? I don't know if we'll review it, but I think that in the next three to five years, we will see He-Man on the screen. Really? You think that... I mean, I don't have a lot of hope when something is based on a toy. It does not inspire me, and I don't think we have a good track record for toy movies. I mean, I just think that Battleship and... yeah, You may not like them, but Mutant Ninja Turtles and Transformers have really started to accelerate toy-based film properties. And Mattel is huge right now with the He-Man license. Every year at Comic-Con, the He-Man stuff is the hottest stuff to get. And as of last year, they had Attack the Blocks, Joe Cornish, and Looper's Ryan Johnson on board as frontrunners for the film. I mean, they are looking to bring in talent. Now, obviously, Ryan Johnson went over to Star Wars, and but they're still looking and... Just a few months ago, they had a new writer working on this, Christopher Yost, who wrote Thor The Dark World and is writing Thor Ragnarok. Oh, God. Yeah, that'll be terrific. I can see why you're enthusiastic about it. Look, people have been attached to this for a long time. I remember John Woo was attracted to it. I remember John Chu, who did the G.I. Joe movies, was attached to this. Is there any other Johns involved? Uh, Channing Tatum (laughs) was going to play He-Man at one point. I mean, yeah, they're always trying, but I think what they keep running into is that there's really, ultimately, this could just turn into a bad Game of Thrones. And its best incarnation, that's probably what it'll end up being. The fact that the 2002-2003 cartoon was canceled in glamorously after a season and a half doesn't give me hope that the film will succeed. I don't know that there's a desire for the film, but I think there's a desire by studios to make it. Yeah, I agree. Known quantities will be made into movies, and and there is a lot of childhood love, as Marjorie has pointed out. People remember He-Man. There is affection for the character, for the toys, for the cartoon. There will be a movie. I just can't believe you're framing it like there'll be a good movie. I'm like, no, there'll be a terrible movie coming. (laughs) Honestly, I haven't seen a Transformers movie since, what, the second one? Because I have no affinity for the Transformers movie, and as a non-fan of the toys didn't really do anything for me. So I think you'd have to be like in the know or somehow like a fan of it somehow for this to be a hit with for you. I'll say this. If they make another He-Man movie, I will watch it. I don't know if I'll see it in theaters, especially if we're busy watching 200 movies to write another now playing book whenever this (laughs) comes out. I didn't see a lot of movies in theaters that I would have liked to last year, but on video, on HBO, on Netflix, or in theaters, any He-Man movie they make, I'll tune in 
because I was a fan of the toy line and I will carry that affinity. All they need to do is get a lot of people like me and they can make some money. I think you exist in their world and I don't think they're going to make a lot of money. I think they're going to probably make enough for one paltry sequel. Well, I think that Trevor is going to be there with me. He and I will at least be the audience and we want to once again thank Trevor for his Kickstarter support. Absolutely. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus review. Great here. movie you picked, Trevor. And she means that non-sarcastically. No, no, I'm not being sarcastic. I like this movie. <laughs> she was excited at the chance to talk about this. And that was great to see Marjorie as the fan of this film. It was good that we were able to find a fan of this film other than Trevor. And I'm not even sure if Trevor's a fan or just wanted to hear us <laughs> maybe inflicted upon Stuart. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I don't know why I was involved, uh, but uh, uh, thank you for donating. And for anyone who wants to get the book that Trevor and many other people's pledges made possible, it's going to be shipping a little later this year. It is up for pre-order now. If you pre-order, you will get the hardcover book signed by all four of us authors on it. After we get our initial shipment, we're not going to be able to sign them because we won't all be in one place at one time again. So you can get your pre-order in now. It's 375 reviews of 125 different movies. We brought the now playing formula in where we have the fan doing the primary review and two others doing counter reviews or additional reviews. We put a lot of work into this. We put a lot of hours into this. And thanks to pledges like Trevor, we were able to get some great art in the book. We were able to really take that to the next level and even get a foreword written by master of horror, John Carpenter. We're really proud of it. We hope you will enjoy it. It's available for pre-order now and you can get the book or you can get the ebook and the audiobook that were made possible by Kickstarter supporters. So the banners at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And we're going to do this again. There was another gracious donor that has paid for Marjorie, myself, and Jacob to review Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke. We'll be covering that next week. I know a lot of people have asked us to cover Studio Ghibli Japanese animation. This will be our first time doing it. And finally, for those of you who want to hear up to 20 more Now Playing bonus movie reviews, there's only five days left. Hateful Eight came out in theaters a couple weeks ago nationwide. It came out in a handful of theaters about a month ago on Christmas. But our fall donation drive is coming to a close. As of February 1st, you will no longer be able to get our reviews of the Hunger Games films, our reviews of Battle Royale 1 and 2, or our numerous reviews of Quentin Tarantino films for Gold Level that was nine films that he directed. We did Kill Bill 1 and 2 as two separate movies. So while Tarantino considers Hateful Eight his eighth film, we consider it his ninth. Did you know that Tarantino's first job was with Dolph Lundgren? He had to go around and clean up animal poop on the set of one of his exercise videos. I don't know why there were animals at the exercise video location, but... Are you sure it was animal poop? Yeah, yeah I was just thinking maybe Dolph Lundgren was the animal. <laughs> no, no. I think they were outdoors, and I think there was it was just a place where there had been squirrels and dogs and what have you. But yes, there's a, a, a Tarantino-Lundgren connection. And we discuss Tarantino and poop a lot as there's a lot of action going down on the commode in Tarantino films. So you can find out all of that for a donation of $25 or more. For $35 or more, you get five bonus movie reviews on top of that. 
you get Tarantino connected films. He wrote True Romance. He wrote a script that was heavily modified for Natural Born Killers. He directed one of the segments of Four Rooms. He wrote and starred in From Dusk Till Dawn. And then Grindhouse was a double feature. And so we're also doing Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror as well as all of the trailers in a massive Grindhouse review. So up to 20 movie reviews for a donation of $35 or more. As you guys know, we've got a big year coming up. We've got a lot more comic book movies. We're going to be getting back to DC after Princess Mononoke. And we got Deadpool a lot more later this summer. And it's listener support that keeps us going. We'd really appreciate your last minute donation to help us out. And you can do that by heading to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So, Trevor, thank you for supporting us. Marjorie, Stuart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Thank you for having me, and thank you, Trevor. And until next time, good journey. Do you hear? Huh? The Alpha and the Omega. Death and rebirth, and as you die, so will I be reborn. Thank you to everyone who supported the now playing Kickstarter campaign. He did it! Victory! Victory! If you haven't yet ordered your copy of underrated movies we recommend, the first now playing book, you can pre-order it now. All pre-orders get the hardcover book signed by all four authors. You can order by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Keep this with you, and Eternia will always be near. In the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of movies such as Rambo, The Transporter, The Avengers Films, Batman, Superman, The James Bond Movies, The Mission Impossible Series, and more. I must possess all, or I possess nothing. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I'm going to take this down to the station, I'm going to put it on the computer, I'm going to check it out... Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Wildor, you've got to hurry. Yes, I'm working as fast as I can. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. The psychos carving is we stumble out of some kind of loony fringe group here, some kind of cult. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Did you have any luck? Not as much as you, apparently. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I don't believe it! I've got a lot of serious work to do! You're acting like Hawkins! Skeletor performed by Dan Milano. Are you a master? Yes, yes, you are! I know that. <laughs> now playing credit narration by Brock. Maybe I can communicate with the poor creature. Now playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. 
All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Don't say I didn't give you a chance. When this is over, you're going to jail, accessory to assault, resisting arrest, endangering lies, I guarantee you. You and all your buddies, I'm going to put you away for 850 years. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Tell me about the loneliness of good, He-Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I guess it's really goodbye, huh? Don't say goodbye. Say good journey. There's an old attorney saying, live the journey, for every destination is but a doorway to another. I have a no cartoon clause in my contract. No, you don't. That makes the best shows. <laughs> we haven't done cartoon spinoffs. Transformers? Oh, God. Repressed. <laughs> this is very Transformers. We would have had to do these other movies. All over MTV is the lucky girl that got to dance in the dark with Springsteen. <laughs> the lucky girl that got to dance in the dark with Springsteen. Yeah, dancing mm -hmm. with Rick Springfield, not the same. Um, that would have been more up my alley than dancing with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> The Cosmic Key, isn't that a Marvel thing? No, that's the Cosmic Cube. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, you get your cosmic stuff together. Come on, Stuart. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure, but it felt, yeah, it felt a little comic book to me. And those are her real eyes. We've actually been in an elevator with her in a hotel. We were? Yeah, don't remember? I mean, yeah, we, you told that story in Lords of Salem. Yeah. Oh, okay. We were in a, hot in a hotel I, elevator with her. She's a I have so many weird experiences. <laughs> On a side note, I just Googled to make sure, see how close her costume was, which, of course, in the comic, it wasn't. There's a disturbing amount of topless Evil Lynn fan art <laughs> that is going on. I, just I can't decide if I'm intrigued or repulsed now. Topless uh, Evil Lynn. And we're going to be reviewing her again. She ended up in Stephen King's The Dark Half. No. Lucky girl. And if we're lucky, I'll also be reviewing her because I'll convince you to do The Last Boy Scout. No. Um, <laughs> and you and I, Stuart, have the same no when it comes to movies, like with Arnie. No. There's like, it's the shutdown He no. wanted to put it in the book. That, he's been pushing that one like nobody's business. No. You, I'm not saying no, actually. I'm saying not for me. You get some other... Oh, people. no, I'm saying bad Arnie. No. Bad Arnie. <laughs> Greetings. There we go. There it is. So Skeletor, we're gr so happy you could join us. Tell me, what are your memories of 1987 and this movie? I will be honest with you. They're fuzzy. I do recall uh, Beastman telling me that a contract from your world had arrived for my likeness rights. Now, this has been something that was a point of contention because 
I tried to secure a copyright on all skulls and skeletons, and that didn't quite work out. I only have copyrights on hooded skulls with muscle-bound chests. So if you're barrel-chested and you're running around with a hood on and a skull face, you owe me five bucks. That's kind of how it works. But this guy, Manayam Golem, or Golem, or Golem, wanted me to sign over rights to a film. I was told it was a biography, that it would be kind of a, a glamour pick. It was not. So I, I mostly remember a lot of disappointment, Darnie. You got a pimp and gold outfit in it, though, and Franklin Jella, you know, esteemed actor, portrayed you. Yeah, but you know what? See, that's the thing, though. He was so busy trying to emote that he didn't stop and think about what's in the head of the character, what really is inside the skull. And the truth is nothing. There's nothing behind the eye sockets. That's the whole point, okay? Magic head. So he was very, very one-note and sort of pompous. I'm not pompous. I'm approachable, you know? I know I'm going to rule the universe. I'm confident. I don't need to run around and, like, sort of, you know, mug to the camera. I just thought he overdid it, and I thought he undersold the vulnerabilities of Skeletor, you know? Like, the things that make me, I don't know, dimensional, for lack of a better word. What about Dolph as He-Man? He was great. You know what? He was pretty dead on. That I'm telling you something, because... Prince Adam and He-Man both, uh, very dim, very simple. Uh, I, I thought Dolph Lundgren probably gave the performance of his career because I thought he, he captured He-Man's last boring, sort of empty-headed attitude. I thought he was the more empty-headed character. So if you had it to do over again, would you still sign over your likeness? You know, I don't think so because I don't like how I was portrayed. I feel like it really hurt my image. I think I was doing pretty good before that movie came along. I think it sort of made me look like a joke. And I made He-Man look like a joke. That's a plus. But you don't make you don't make Skeletor look like a joke. I mean, I actually forced them to put in a tag in the film that said that I would be back because it looked like I wasn't going to be back, Arnie. It looked like I was going to fall like Hans Gruber and then you were never going to see me. So I said, you better put in a little tag at the end to let people know I'm back. Otherwise, they're going to be confused. And they did. They did. Well, I threatened their lives, you know, and to tear apart the fabric of their world. So that that, that was probably the, the thing that finally got it done. And can you give me any insight? I hear there's rumors of new contract negotiations and a new film coming out with maybe Michael Hearn as He-Man. I have been approached about countless reboots, Arnie. Reboots! I'd like to see what that is. I wear furry boots. I've never tried on a reboot. But all I know is, hey, if it's cash in my pocket, (laughs) things have gotten a little lean, you know, tiger's got to eat. (laughs) <laughs> that food don't come cheap. So, yeah, uh, it's been a while. Let's just say we could use the cash. We could use, you know, we could, I, I've got a Kickstarter going uh, on a, a line of uh, furry bikinis that I'm trying to get going and uh, nipple polish as well. I will back that nipple polish Kickstarter. I could definitely use some. See, there you go. This is what I'm telling people. See, see, I told you, Evelyn. Yeah, she's making a face. No, no, go ahead and make that face. You already think it's a good idea. Of course, you need nipple polish, right? Because when it gets cold out and you run around, it's like they get hot and it starts to hurt. You know, it's a big chafe. Yeah, see, I told you. I, it would sell so well. Oh, she just always oh, doesn't want to support me. You don't. You don't support me. Sorry. Well, I don't want to get in the midst of that domestic squabble. Skeletor, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure here, too, Arnie. I'm a big fan of now playing. Please say hello to Marjorie and Stuart for me. Okay. Oh, uh, one more thing. 
I'll get you He-Man. Gotta say it so I get the thing. 